As an artist, I, I believe it's my job and all of our jobs to reflect the times. And it's been such a difficult time. So I wanted to uplift, encourage, and celebrate all of the beautiful black queens and kings that continue to inspire me and inspire the whole world. I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, the podcast worth at least $2,800. Isn't that right? <laughs> it's, is that two stimmies? The, the, the stimmy hit on Friday. Did yours hit on Friday? Yeah, somewhere along there. I yeah. saw people tweeting about it, and I went right to my cash app because I give the government my cash app information. Mm. You know, straight up get my checking account and, and all that. And it wasn't there. So, of course... You were, you were hot yep. because Dell's went through, <laughs> but actually a couple hours later, um, I had it. So I'm so glad that Joe Biden heard triloquy, heard us cussing him out, complaining about these stimulus, uh, stimulus, <laughs> <laughs> these triloquy stimulus, and finally gave us our money. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Or should we say thank you? Because we deserve more than that, really. Probably, but I'll, yeah, I'll there's, say, there's all that conversation. I'll say thanks anyway. Did you see people online saying, "Oh, it's not really all that much money"? Or <laughs> what was that? On, was that on? Was that on your timeline? That line? wasn't on my timeline. Yeah, no. pe- people. Like I want to. I want to talk to those people if that isn't a lot of money. Yeah, I just find yeah, out pass what you mine. You don't need it. Pass, pass me yours, rather. <laughs> and I will say thank you, just like I'm saying thank you to everyone who's tuned in right. to this 92nd opus of the Triloquy Podcast. To the returning listeners, thank you so much. Week after week, you continue to help us make this thing a reality and we couldn't do it without you thank you very much to the new listeners this uh is a podcast that i i try to describe differently every week because there's really no putting one hat on it what'd you come up with this week i mean i think that triloquy is the world as seen by classical music professionals i hmm. think that's a, a fair statement for this week the, for, yeah, for this week anyway. Right. M- maybe by next week, um, w- one of us will no longer be a classical music professional. Mm. <laughs> I hope not. Anyway, I hope that's not the case. <laughs> Are you okay this week? We'll have to wait and see. <laughs> I feel, I'm feeling more laughy than, than I feel like you're feeling right now. I'll catch up to you. You'll get there? Okay. This 90-second opus of Triloquy is made possible in part by the Thornton School of Music Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Committee. I was invited by Mr. Kenneth Foster to speak to the committee last week at USC, my alma mater, and it was a pleasure. So I just wanted to make sure I gave y'all a a really great shout-out and a huge thank you for supporting Triloquy. The Jedi Council, that's clever. Yeah, I like that. It is. With the Jedi Council in the Star Wars universe be the ones championing uh, DEI across, like who's like who's going to demand diversity on the Jedi Council? It's I think pretty they, diverse. I think they had it. I think they had it. I mean, they had the long all neck species. Had, right, the the one with the long neck. They had yeah, all di- a, a whole range and and Yaddle, another Yoda sort mm-hmm. of creature, whatever kind of creature they are. Yeah, of course, John Williams behind all of that music. John Williams was nominated for a Grammy this year, I believe, did not win one. We won't be talking about John Williams, but we will be talking a little bit about the Grammys, um, you know, small picture and big picture, you know, the specific artists and uh, what the whole thing is. Uh, we have a very special guest today, Lauren Green, a master's student at the University of New Mexico. We talk a little bit about um, 
today, as, as we just said, you know, looking at the world through mm. uh, the lens of uh, classical music professionals. Uh, Lauren and I talk about uh, feminism a little bit. We talk about the anthology of black classical music stories that uh, she's putting together and a little, about, a little bit about her flute playing and her podcast. So I hope you'll stick around to hear from Lauren Green. Uh, in the downbeat of this opus, we heard from the one and only Beyonce. Scott, one of the things that we're going to talk about here in a second is how uh, the Grammys is or maybe isn't really working to get people to watch it, whether it's streaming or or live. Mm -hmm. If Beyonce is there, I'm watching. Honestly, I'm surprised that she uh, gives it uh, the time of day. Maybe there were some deals made. Um, and her I, husband there too. The, yeah, Jay-Z there as well, Hove there as well. I think the point is no one on either side of the table was not thinking about the impact of the appearance there. Yeah, I think that, that right. has to be a part of the conversation. Yeah. So we'll we'll get um, a little bit into that. Um, you have some music to, uh, to, to introduce us to this Do you week. remember a few opuses ago I said I was going to find a slide artist to bring into you. Oh, yeah, because I feel a way about slide, yes. Okay, so <laughs> slide guitar. I want to talk to you about Joanna Connor, who is a Chicago staple, uh, very much in that Chicago sound of blues, but she's been grinding it out for decades. Uh, I caught on to her in the late 90s, early 2000s, and she has a new release that was, uh, she put out an EP that was released in January. So we'll talk about her new release, I Feel So Good. All right, looking forward to that. And someone will not feel so good after we get done with the triloquy, or maybe, we'll see. But let's <laughs> go ahead and hop into the first movement. So Scott and I are going to start this first movement by having a little bit of Grammy talk. For people who have been around, who know the Triloquy podcast, who know me personally and my feelings about the Grammys, you may be expecting us to sit here and shit on it. Well, you know what? You're right. An institution that is still celebrating firsts, especially black firsts, in America in 2021, specifically within the genre of music, should be ashamed of itself. And we should really question the stake that we put in an institution that celebrates those types of firsts Mm -hmm. this late. But that doesn't mean there aren't people to celebrate and things to talk about. So we will definitely do a little bit of that. Mm -hmm. First and foremost, Scott, one of the things that I want to touch on right now is the fact that we all have a story. Everybody, I think, has a story about how the Grammys does not speak to them. But as we've seen, and we kind of had uh, the Grammys pulled up tonight as we were getting together. Mm-hmm. There were moments that spoke to you more than me, names that were said that I didn't know mm-hmm. that you know and, and, and speak to your experience. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about John Prine right now, someone who somehow... The tribute section. Somehow I was not familiar with, you know, or even the Eddie Van Halen sort of moment. Sure. At my understanding and uh, of Eddie Van Halen's legacy comes from this podcast, from what you have brought in. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff that just not does not speak to the younger set, um, but does to the slightly older set. I feel like someone in production must know that someone older is watching. Do you think it's significant? Do you think it's important for the Grammys to be putting... Um, you know, that sort of content on their platform for the younger folks, reminding us about the path that came before. Do you think they're effectively doing that? Well, we talked, yeah, we did talk about that. And even when you were interviewing Joey, the two of you were talking about how the younger set needs these introductions and Mm -hmm. and it is going to take some time for them to get that knowledge, that education. Um, 
Not to mention the fact that I don't know most of the artists that were featured. Right. So the uh, the shout out to the deceased <laughs> was what I understood. So I knew John. Sure, sure. I knew John Prine, and they had Lionel Richie singing that Kenny Rogers song. So you know, and he and, and he passed. Well, I guess I'll, I'll, it's also fair to note that uh, the Grammys featured a band called Black Puma. Mm-hmm. That you know them so well, you're talking about how the song they perform. They have to be tired. They're of tired of it. But for me to see a black person again up there playing the guitar in that style with that band for the first time, mm. I, I think it, it, we shouldn't uh, completely ignore the ways in which the Grammys is opening up doors in that way. I'm always looking to see what the black people are doing if I have to watch the Grammys. I hadn't heard of Black Puma, you mm-hmm. know, again, just as another example on, on top of everything else. I think it's something to be noted. Can you give the Grammys at least that many flowers? I Yeah, it's fine. Just because I don't find any reason to watch it doesn't mean that it's not good. Yeah, yeah. All I'm saying is that I'm not, it's, it's the same way with the Oscars. Yeah. I haven't seen the movies, so why do I care who won the award? Right. Maybe that tips me off as to what to go and watch. So likewise with the Grammys, maybe now I've got a listening list. Yeah. Because you were asking me earlier, how do I find new music? And it's just, you know, dumb luck stumbling on it a lot of the time. So maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll take the Grammy list and go and make a new playlist. And I think that's a, a great way to look at some of the deep stuff like th- th- that, you know, we talk about all the time how the classical uh, awards don't make it to the show. On top of that, you have all of these engineering and producing awards. Liner notes. S- liner notes, sound mixing, yeah. which, I mean, you can advocate for, right? I'm, Absolutely. I'm not a mixer, you know, yeah. and, and, and nothing like that. Shout out to Evan. But these people are, and they're being uh, recognized for it. So to, to, to that extent, I honor uh, the Grammys television show now, I, I think I need to make it clear that there's a difference between the Grammy award, an award and the production, the show, <laughs> the, the two-hour show that we watch. So when, I'm, when I mean the Grammys, I'm talking about the Grammys show. Right. Okay. Right. It's fun to see uh, Bruno Mars and uh, Anderson Pack of uh, Silk Fusion. Oh my gosh. Silk Sensa- was it Silk Sensation? Sonic Fusion. Sonic, Fu- Sonic Silk. <laughs> we are fucking it up. What, y'all, y'all remind me what it is. I'm not going to look it up right now. But Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack. <laughs> yep. It's fun to see them on the TV dancing and doing their thing, doing a good job. It was great. You know? So I liked I, it. So I guess it, it sounds like, Scott, the issue is the content that you find, that I find, that we find, if we happen to be sitting in front of it, is enjoyable, is good content. I guess the issue is getting us invested enough to to take out the time and do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, which is why it's great that it's on demand. Mm-hmm. So I oh, can, it would have to be. You know, you can't. Yeah. You can go back and check out the ones that you missed or the funny ones that you heard somebody talk about. Because uh, if it wasn't for the fact that we were going to record and talk about it, I probably would have no frame of reference with it. Same, same. Yeah. But but we have a platform, so. right? <laughs> right. Um, part of my dissonance in you know my feelings about the Grammys is the Grammy show again is the presentation. And uh, the people that I personally know, you know, who right. who win Grammys, who have have won Grammys, but a um, aren't represented on the uh, on the on, on the actual production, mm-hmm. and you know, b who would other people who I feel like would otherwise no shade not really be caring either, mm-hmm. but because the Grammys gave them something, they're there. Do you feel like your opinion on the Grammys would be different if you were? embedded in a community of Grammy winners or aspiring 
Grammy winners? Maybe, but let me also tell you something that I have noticed. It seems to me like it is the black artists who are making the move to not pay that much attention mm. to the award, don't you think? Because um, the white folks that I know sure seem excited about Taylor Swift. Oh, you right? know some Taylor Swift fans. Only from what I, <laughs> only from what I see on the like sure. on the timeline on social sure. media. Yeah, I know that. I I just knew from following somebody that she had won, and they were calling her queen. These people. What? See? I'll see. You're trying to get me started. <laughs> what do you mean trying? I just did. So what I'm saying is, 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 is it seems to me like black artists, uh, having had enough of this poor treatment just on the regular yeah. in, in the industry, have started to distance themselves from it. So doesn't BET have an, have a, an award Oh, ceremony? absolutely. And I feel okay, like, so, and, and my thing is, that's the one we should be lusting over, at least the black people. But, right, you know. so, so now are we in danger of having two different award shows? Well, do we not need them, based on what we're talking I'm about asking here? You. And, not, and not just two, but focusing in on, you know, not this centralized thing, but the little corners of the music world that we exist in, mm -hmm. you know, really doing that. The BET Awards, you know, the Country Music Awards, they, they've been like that, you know, yep. because they all laugh at the Grammys as well. Mm -hmm. um, last week we were talking about Molly Mayer. Whatever, whatever award she would be eligible for on that scale, you know, I think that community exists. I think those fans exist. And I think there would be a means for, for that to happen. You would watch, you would watch the National Roots, um, you know, award show with Molly, uh, you know, I would. Uh, so that's my point. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's all I'm saying. No, that's a good maybe, point. Maybe the issue is this centralized, attempted, one-size-fits-all sort of conglomeration that is their downfall. Reach, it's, isn't that interesting? An attempt to reach a the most broad audience being your weakness, right. being what you're doing wrong. I wonder. But, you know, we were also talking about uh, Megan Thee Stallion won what award? She won a couple, but Best Rap Performance is one. But anyway, what, what were you saying about Megan Thee Stallion? What, what about her now? Well, when she won, you said, "Well, of course she won the oh, black. Right. She won the black award." Oh, yeah. <laughs> let well, well, let let let's 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 pause here, and we'll save the rest for the trilogy. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Because you're right. I, I'm all right. I, because I didn't, you're right. I didn't mean to put carts before horses here. So. Um, but congratulations as, as we're getting out of the little Grammy talk here to um, Beyonce and Blue Ivy. First of all, Scott, I, Blue I read Ivy. that too. Blue Ivy, second youngest, so not the youngest, right? But the second youngest Grammy winner. Uh, uh, I was listening to Charlemagne on the Breakfast Club uh, early this morning, and he said Blue Ivy is not going to care about when she's sixteen. She's like, that yeah. little thing, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> right? If it's even still out, right, right. It's going to be in her box of toys, like whatever, like you or know. broken and sent <laughs> out on the curb. <laughs> <laughs> for, right. the, for the Salvation Army to right. take. Right, no, Beyonce probably going to make sure that with that a, Grammy's With a big in. wad of super glued, putting it back together, the horn back on. That's hilarious. <laughs> of course, uh, Beyonce is now uh, the Grammy's most decorated woman mm -hmm. and most decorated singer. Mm -hmm. they, they they make that distinction. Uh, there's some conductor who has the most, right? Schulte. Mm -hmm. Yeah, bless him. Bless him, and congrats to him too, Quincy Jones. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to Quincy Jones. Yeah, he up there, <laughs> like twenty eight, I think. Yeah, he's up there. So, so yeah. Beyonce just blew past him, then, huh? Yeah, All yeah. Right. Well, well, I don't. Well, 
well, they said uh, woman artist and singer. So I don't know if Quincy Jones is categorized as a singer. So maybe that is mm. why, you know, mm. they say that. Okay. But, but anyway, you know, women's history, you know, for, for that to that happen. So, mm-hmm. so um, I want to uh, give a shout out to uh, Lil Baby's performance. I just want to say that a lot of people are talking about micro opera, mini opera, and what it can look like in the future, new opera. I think that is it. So if, if you want to go back um, and, and take a peek at Lil Baby's performance, not to be confused to my non rap folks with Da Baby, who actually was conducting. They mm-hmm. had, did you see that? They had, uh, I, I, I saw that. it. They I had, had the co- baby conducting. <laughs> I know, but the judges in the back, man, I had to cover my eyes. That I just, was, let's talk, okay, see, I know, I know we didn't need to be here for long, it, but let's talk about it. Was I not it. supposed to go there? Let's talk about it. Okay. I get the whole law versus hip hop mm-hmm. sort of thing and bringing it together and the juxtaposition with the baby with a bedazzled b- baton mm-hmm. and all that so they had a live uh, violinist uh, yep. there on stage yep. there are black judges and I, the the idea of those being judges didn't didn't instantly snap with me anyway so if the argument is that they needed to be white for us to see judges we'll know because i thought it was supposed to be like a cult Qua- thing i thought it first. was a choir oh yeah <laughs> oh, so you're like so why why is it an all-white choir yeah, exactly i thought this was, i thought it was a really strange choice at first so, and then yeah. i saw the, and then i saw the one woman had the little doily the little right. white thing I, okay i get it so yeah I, I get that part of it i get that part of it but i but again i think the critique is critique it will always be that there are black judges. So that means if you want to portray judges, they can be black. And there could have been folks back there who weren't making a gimmick out of it. I mean, I'm going to just keep it funky. One of those white women was obviously having a great time, but having a great time looking goofy. Right. And that's why I covered my eyes. And yeah, that and, and that disrespects the art form because you can put swag behind dancing in a judge's coat. Right. You know? But anyway, so no, I, I agree with you on that. Just, one. just, just little, just little. We had to pull over for a second. Yep. Uh, I want to um, just some some other uh, quick hits. Jessica McJunkins um, is now a Grammy winner. Shout out to you, Stephanie Matthews, uh, early season two guest. Um, uh, and I don't think this is her first Grammy. So huge shout out to Stephanie Matthews, Titus Emmy and a Grammy. What am I Titus. doing? With, what am I doing with my life? I mean, Titus out here just killing it. <laughs> you kill it in a different way. Um, and uh, and and among many, many, many others, um, including the Met. Maybe I'll remember to bring that up in the trilogy. I need to. I'll bring that up in the trilogy. Oh, boy. Um, but uh, as we transition out of this first accidental, I guess I'll, I'm, I'm going to give the Grammys a sharp because the awards are what it is, but the actual show of it, some of the performances really made me miss outside. One in particular, sure. Cardi B. So I showed you her performance of um, uh, Up. I think she was, yeah, she was doing her new single, Up. And it was, the stage was a complete LCD screen stage. So it looks like she's sitting on things. Or anyway, the, the visuals were so engaging yeah. to me. It made me wonder what that would look like on a huge stadium screen. That visual would be, you know, more than you can deal with, especially if you you know, have some medicine before you go to the concert. <laughs> um, some opera companies have been experimenting with uh, projections, you know, they, mm-hmm. and they, you know, they have the, who, whatever the vocalist is, they have to stay within, you know, like a one foot by one foot area. And then all the action is digitally projected around them. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. So, you know, I, I think that that's probably on the horizon if it's, if, if not, already there yeah i haven't been to a concert in so long i don't know what they're using they might already be doing that well um 
aside from the Grammys, uh, last week or the week before last, Cardi B made women's history, um, hip hop hist- uh, uh, history, music history by becoming the first woman rapper to have um, a song or an album go diamond. That mm. means 10 million purchases. That 10 means million? 10 million. That means if 10 million people bought your album for one dollar, you have ten million dollars, and I bought Cardi B's. Um, I, I bought Bodak Yellow, mm-hmm. and it didn't only cost a dollar when I bought that album. So she's so she's got as she says in the song, she's up and it's stuck. <laughs> All right. The the I don't I'll have to show you the music video. I don't know if I've showed it to you before, but it takes place out in the desert, out in the the Middle East, probably not far from where your your brother is. And shout in, out Alan in Abu Dhabi. And in uh, in hip hop, you know, going to Abu Dhabi, you know, the trip somewhere in the Middle East is sort of the ultimate sign of I have made it and that was Cardi B's start that was sort of her coming out party that music video and this song that has now gone diamond mm. so um cool it's, it, it's it's incredible to see as we continue to celebrate women's history I think we have to make sure that we really shine a light on important moments like that so here's a little bit of Bodak Yellow a now diamond record by the one and only Cardi B you can fuck with me if you wanted to These expensive, these is red bottoms, these is bloody shoes Hit the school, I can get them both, I don't wanna choose And I'm quick, cut a nigga off, so don't get comfortable Scott, it's not only Bodak Yellow that was number one for a long, long, long time Last week, the CBS app went number one <laughs> Right On right. all devices why? Why, why, why? why? I wonder why that is. Well, has CBS like produced a new sitcom? Gosh. Do they have a new original series? I, you know, or, I, or, or is it something produced on the ground by a very rich woman? I think they partnered with someone for a interview event. <laughs> so last week we uh, talked a little bit about the interview between Oprah and Meghan Markle. We were actually one of the first, Scott, because it came out on Sunday night, right? And we record on Monday, so yeah, it, it was cool to be on the the front edge of that well well i went back i needed you know i, I needed a, a second look because mm-hmm. i actually watched it live i needed a second look you know you go on the internet figure out what service that you're not currently paying for or whatever has it i go on and, and see that it's streaming through cbs who so is exclusively streaming through the uh, cbs app and that's what made it number one across all apps everyone in the world is looking for this one bit of content yeah and this one place was smart enough to grab it, to own it, right. so that they can continue to, to capitalize on it. Content is king, Scott. I mean, I feel like we're returning to this conversation more and more and more of content ownership. What do you think about CBS using this as their means of, of making some money while they can? Because as I mentioned, it's not an original movie or series. It's not some sitcom. It's, that's the next, it's some tea that, that got us to their, their network. That's the next question. What else do they have to support a streaming service? What else is somebody going to pay whatever the monthly fee is beyond, you know, you can only watch Megan and Harry get interviewed once or twice, right? Right, right. You're not going to binge that. What else do they have on their service that's going to make it worth it? So... Basically, they would see a a big spike and then a drastic drop off unless they have something else to offer. And I think I have to say that for me, if the big spike is insert a number of zeros here. 
who cares about the fall off if you can figure out your next big spike? What if what if that is the way that these networks are moving? Not the steadiness of it all, but let's get the big payoffs as often as we can, despite how low the lows are. That's probably what they would have to do. Um, and that's my question is what really they should they they if they have to decide they had to have to decide whether or not they're going to stay in the game right and if they're not how they're going to right that's probably the question they ask themselves and if they're not then they got to start charging more for that interview i think we're moving toward you know as oprah has shown us i talk about joe button all the time we're moving toward a creator economy Mm -hmm. now what is a creator economy That's the title of an article that I'm looking at right now on InfluencerMarketingHub.com. I'll have it in the description of this opus. What is the creator economy? I'll read just a little bit of the opening here. For many decades, big media ran the world of entertainment and news. A relatively small number of companies control what most of us read, viewed, read, viewed, and listened to. To contribute to the conversation, we had to be employed by one of these media conglomerates, or at the very least, be significant enough to feature in the stories they told. We watched scheduled television programs, listened to radio slots, read newspapers written by journalists, following their editor's orders, read books and magazines from larger publishers, and spent evenings at the cinemas watching films distributed by a small number of studios. The article goes on to talk about how things um, have changed. Again, when I'm thinking about the future of this uh, creator-driven economy, Scott, I'm sure that you would openly invite this platform that musicians are flocking to to showcase their own performances to be um, paid for those performances whether it's a soloist whether it's an ensemble despite genre so-called classical music and otherwise how does that make you feel as someone who is a part of the more traditional side of media. I found myself when I was working at NPR being messy on Twitter all the time, tweeting the, um, you know, what insert pre-recorded thing here or insert classical streaming service here, Mm -hmm. speaking against it about, well, I'm actually here. I'm live. I'm talking with the people X, Y, and Z. That was sort of my selling point. To an extent, I still think that's a strength of public radio to really have a person there and not just listen to to a stream or or, or whatever but still it's that if we're human seeing touch. It, if we're seeing if we're seeing uh conglomerates like CBS evolving and going toward the streaming thing and finding the content that's going to get people to to stream them it has to be something in my opinion that all creators are thinking about but also all media personalities all media professionals are thinking about as well yeah there's uh something big is going to have to happen in in order for out my format to transition to, be, to, to continue to be relevant. Um, the one thing that I think it has going for it is infrastructure and resources. Mm-hmm. Um, simply because we, you know, that network across the country is in place, even if you're talking about national public radio and yeah. their uh, clear channel and their uh, client stations, um, there's that huge infrastructure, and that's a that's a huge reach. You can't deny that reach, the possible reach. I, I, I think I mentioned uh, Charlemagne, Charlemagne the God in the Breakfast Club uh, today, earlier as we were recording here. 
Yes, you can wake up at 5 a.m. and listen to them. I think that the majority of us are either listening to the podcast version mm-hmm. of their live radio show mm-hmm. or, or going on YouTube and watching the video of it. So, I mean, everyone is really having this discussion of how we can uh, transition and, and move into the, the streaming thing. I think there are other people, other people like Oprah and, and other folks that we've talked about on this podcast who understand that and want to be at the head of the content mm-hmm. that is in play. Yeah. You know, we can, you know, whether we're talking about the uh, individual creator or the conglomerate, the content is, is what we're following. But right, uh, right. O- over dinner, we were talking about all these subscriptions we pay for from Netflix to Hulu to whatever. You know, is it access to the network of what that catalog is, you know, the Netflix catalog or whatever, or is it specific bits of content and media? And it's a little bit of both, I would say, right? Exactly. And you asked, which would I keep out of all of them? Because, you know, I don't pay for a whole lot of them. I look at it. I look at every little payment that I have to do as a fire to be put out. Sure. And when you've got six or eight of them, that's a lot of freaking fires. So uh, I would probably hold on to Netflix. And that might be force of habit or ease of use. I don't know, but I did buy I did buy into Disney Plus just for the Mandalorian, mm-hmm. and then they followed that up with it. They kept me around with WandaVision. WandaVision. And that's the thing; they knew you were there. They, right. They they, they, they they figured that you would like it. Right. And they're gonna they're and they're gonna put advertise that, promote that in my face all the time. But they. Acted, we, we were talking earlier about what even what even is a network? What mm-hmm. what why do you have to be sitting in front of your TV at eight o'clock on Thursdays to see whatever show when you can binge it? But with the Mandalorian and WandaVision, they made you wait right. until Saturday. Right, right. And you know, so there there's that's one way. Release it one at a time, piecemeal it like you would a series on TV there, yeah. to keep you coming back rather than, okay, I'm gonna binge it and when my free month trial runs out. I'm cancel and then you know, yeah. But I'd rather have I'd I'd rather be able to go and watch the Mandalorian or WandaVision whenever I want. So that's now, why I pay that money. Now, if the rights run out or something, and the Mandalorian and all of the Marvel stuff moves to this new platform that oh, you don't geez. pay for, are, is that content strong enough for you to go pay for? If you found out after we stopped recording that, um, let let's say. BritBox, for some reason, (laughs) got Mandalorian. Are you going to get a BritBox subscription so that you can watch rewatch those episodes? What else is on BritBox? You don't know. You you don't know. But uh, is is knowing that the Mandalorian is there enough? That's the question that I would ask. What else? Mm. What, what, What else is over here? What else am I going to get? Because I've already seen it half a dozen times, probably. I've already binged it plenty. So I don't need to go back and have it. Um, I would ask, what is the new service, the new platform bringing to the table? Something tells me that there would be that one does Sunday Bi- night where you just want to watch your favorite episode does, of Mandalorian. Sure. But what about, uh, does BritBox have Benny Hill? Is that a British show? Uh-huh. I'm sure they do. Sold. Okay. <laughs> well, then I'll give you my password. Right on, right I have BritBox for keeping up appearances. Mm-hmm. Shout out to everyone who, all the folks of my generation who stayed up late. Maybe it would be Saturday nights at your grandma's house, and she didn't pay for cable. No. So you had to just look at the regular old channels. And, and have somebody up there <laughs> holding on to the antenna just right. 
So at PBS was usually one of the anyway. As we were falling asleep, this show called Keeping Up Appearances was uh, was, was the one I watched. So there's a nostalgia sure. around it, and you know all all of that stuff. Um, as far as the um, the things that I pay for, as far as content. I think YouTube, and this is not an ad, this is not an underwriter, I think YouTube Red would be the very last thing that I would let go of because, A, the most important thing is that I need to close the app and, and keep the music going. Right. You know. Yep. Um, B, close the app and keep the music going because of the unique content that is on YouTube. Mm -hmm. So if I want to uh, listen to someone shredding um, the Moonlight Sonata on electric guitar. Mm -hmm. I guess that exists somewhere on Apple or Spotify, but I but I can just search it on YouTube, and I know it's there. Okay, Krangbin's uh, hip hop medley. That's the only place you can find it. Which has on... made it on a what did I text you a Dosecki's ad or they got a Dosecki ad. Yeah, 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 that music. Um, but. Women's History Month, we're here um, transitioning out of this content conversation. What's the moral of the story? I, for me, the moral of the story is that if you are creating, understand that content is the future. It's not about the network. It's really the content is central. The, the networks, the people, the money is fighting over the content. So just keep that in mind. You know, you're, what you are creating, what you have is of supreme value, you know, so... Just, just keep that there. Uh, we're in, we're in Women's History Month, so um, you know we celebrate women all the time. But I, I, I will say that in March, I make sure that every morning I'm intentionally revisiting or visiting for the first time music um, by a woman artist who I've always loved, always appreciated. These past few days for me, it's been one of them has been Lauren Hill, mm. and there are so many Lauren Hill performances that are unique and maybe even exclusive to YouTube. One of the ones that I have been revisiting is a 2016 video of uh, Lauren Hill and and all her 5011 kids <laughs> singing uh, an arrangement of uh, doo-wop. So here's a little bit of that content as we move on to the final accidental for this first movement. You never have to twist my arm very hard to listen to Lauren Hill. How many kids did you say she had? 50 11 to 12? 50 <laughs> Cool. Um, what was it about that track that was, uh, what about that track did you like? I just think we, we love to see the family of mm. it all. And Lauren Hill has been through her stuff. And, and she also has some problematic moments. We're, we're, we're not here to talk about that, but we got our women's history. Mm -hmm. I mean, one album. This is not the Lauren Hill opus of the podcast, <laughs> but one album, Scott, and we are still talking about it. Who else? And maybe, maybe there is someone else who put out one album that ended up being iconic, but nothing is on the top of my head. The Miseducation of Lauren Hill is a must mm. when we talk about women's history. You, yeah. you can't not talk about it. I remember, I think my dad got the CD from Sam Goody. Do you remember Sam Goody? Yeah, the music stores. Goody got it. We we ran over there with him, and he put it into the uh, computer that back in that day probably had one gig of memory <laughs> and everything. You know, so a long time ago, over twenty years ago, mm -hmm. and and we're still talking about it. So um, huge shout out and honor to Lauren Hill, especially for um, Women's History. It's something to see Lauren with all of her kids. Um, 
because there's one mother, there are many mothers crying. There's one mother in particular, I'm sure, still going through it here in the here in the Twin Cities. Mm-hmm. You know, the mother and all of the family of the late George Floyd. There's some George Floyd news that's been coming out recently. I wanted to put a flat next to the story that came out. Twenty-seven million dollars was awarded unanimously by city officials to the George Floyd estate. Now, it goes without Your saying... Your comments. It goes without saying, first and foremost, that no amount of money can replace a life of no, a loved one. No, and his brother says that in every interview since, that he would give all that back just to have George. And the, isn't, that, isn't that powerful? It is, I, and I feel that. The presser had me getting emotional because... I guess the lawyer on their side was really honoring, um, you know, all of the people in the Twin Cities and the and around the world who marched in his words on the streets and on your couches. He really honored everyone who was a part of this discourse and really making sure that we were doing what we could to hold somebody accountable for this. I can certainly speak to the sacrifices that I made to make sure that folks knew the seriousness and the urgency of this, the responsibility that I felt like I had. So to hear him say that, um, I felt like I was a part of it. I sat in front of the the, the TV and, and shed a couple tears because I I felt the collectiveness of what he was trying to point us to. I mean, think about it, Scott. One one man's life here in the Twin Cities that speared a, a global summer of of so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are still organizations pretending to care about DEI, you know, because of that, the, the, the way that he did this. So, you know, his, his, his death, unfortunately, did that. But, you know, we're talking about this $27 million settlement. We, we talked about this earlier before we turn the mics on. I'll, I'll, I'll give my perspective. I want you to make your point because it's a point that I did not think of. I saw the $27 million settlement as the city's attempt to make those of us who are going to be upset at what history proves is a likely non-guilty verdict. An appeasement. To, to cool us off. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, that's what I saw the, the $27 million thing as. Obviously, that, that's not the case because if Derek Chauvin is found not guilty, they could have gave the family $100 million and stuff is going to get towed up. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's unfair to say that. I saw that $27 million, as you just said, as an appeasement. You had other ideas, uh, other reactions to it. I have to also let you know that in the last six or so days, things have escalated around George Floyd Square, that that place have where... You, it, have you been there in person uh, since I, last I have, summer? I have not. I went, I went one time. Mm-hmm. It was crowded yeah. when I went too. And... You can still go and, you know, reflect and, and have your moment there in the space, but it has essentially become an autonomous zone. They keep police out. There's uh, been instances of people getting uh, critically hurt within the zone, and they won't let police inside. They, they will bring the person to the police at the edge of the zone. So things are escalating there. Um and the first thing that I thought of was how are they, when I saw $27 million, I thought they're just selecting the jurors now. How are they going to get uh, an impartial jury in the Twin Cities with, you know, I would look at that as a possible juror and go, $27 million, they gave it up unanimously. Hmm, he's guilty. 
So, and that's and that's what uh, Chauvin's lawyer said that you know you 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 just decided everything here, and if they move it, what if they move it to some community that's not quite as sympathetic? Mm-hmm. What if they move it to a community where they think Minneapolis is still on fire, that all of this unrest is still happening, you know, and and then you're going to see an injustice. I think it just showcases how fucked up all of this is because from my perspective the 27 million dollars does not have any it it does it doesn't sway me either way i don't i don't need a settlement to consider chauvin guilty it, it's not that that's doing that for me can i be clear too that i'm not advocating for chauvin course, at all of course of course when i when i thought how are they going to get an an impartial jury in the in the twin cities I immediately thought, well, if they move the trial somewhere else, justice will not be served. That's my line of right, thought. Right. Right. No. I, and maybe I, I that's that. is that by design? My this is my question, and maybe we don't have the answer to this uh, today. What does the prosecution think mm-hmm. of of the settlement? If the prosecution considered it a good thing, would that would that tint your opinion on yeah, the settlement? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it, I, I think it's important to 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 think about that. Yeah, I'd, I, well, just that I'd have to think. Maybe, but, maybe, maybe we'll come back. I definitely feel the collective trauma of it all because, yes, it is going to be an unpleasant time in the Twin Cities if he's found not guilty. Oh Lord, we are still talking about putting in front of a jury and letting the systemically racist justice system determine the guilt of a person when we all saw it. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's mm-hmm. my thing. Again, back even back in the Rodney King days. Let's 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 go back there. There was also a video then. It was a video that people were saying, "Oh, well, I don't know if X Y and Z and but you know because of what camcorders look like in 1991, mm-hmm. 1992. We clearly saw what happened mm-hmm. to to George Floyd. So the fact that it has to go up for trial I think really speaks to the the radical changes that need to be made. I and 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 that's that's not me saying that I don't believe that all people deserve uh, due process. I'm saying we see the, the prime the 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 evidence is there. Mm-hmm. Like is the tape is, is that tape not going to be taken into the courtroom? Is is that not one of the pieces of evidence? Okay, we have all fucking seen it. Mm-hmm. So. Huh. Well- there was one guy that the defense let go from the juror pool who claimed to have not seen it and also conflated Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. He thought that Floyd was shot in his own home, that he was shot in his own home. I've, and the defen- okay. and I don't know why the defense wouldn't want him, but they ejected him for that. I was reading, and I posted this on my Facebook, that the second juror they chose um, doesn't doesn't uh well first of all he alleges to not to not have seen the tape mm-hmm. which i don't understand how that is possible but also says that um he views black lives matter as unfavorably that was his mm-hmm. word mm-hmm. and also doesn't believe that minneapolis police target black men any more mm-hmm. than white men okay. they're, they're setting us up that's why again that's why i said the 27 million dollars is the city's attempt to appease us mm-hmm. yeah I, I i see your point of view for sure if I Scott, I swear to God, I would be the I would be out of here. If if I found myself in that sort of tragic situation and I got that sort of settlement, 
I would be gone from the United States of America. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's enough money to to set up a commune somewhere. I hear you. Hell, I, I will I will pull you in. Maybe you can do some Caribbean Mountain beer. I don't know. <laughs> but it's but it's but it's just fucked up. The 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 system is not built to 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 be fair. I I can't say that I I believe that. Unfortunately, um, we're gonna find out. Thoughts here. thoughts and thoughts and prayers and chants and everything to the uh, the family and friends of George Floyd. Flat a big flat there a big flat to the whole thing. As we transition um, out of these accidentals into the second movement. Um, I thought I would uh, honor this conversation uh, in the life of George Floyd with a performance by the late Leontine Price, another one of the many important black women to honor during Women's History Month. This is her rendition of Lord, I Just Can't Keep From Crying. Two, striking a chord, shining a light on the music that moved us this week. Scott, last week you talked about, um, well, first of all, uh, another shout out to Psalm 1. Yeah. Uh, uh, we both appreciated the, the social media love. In that conversation of women in hip hop, in, in that classic music, you talked about not really being able to relate mm-hmm. and how, you know, when it comes to a local artist, you know, you have a better time with that than the big pop you know, the big rap artists like Megan The Stallion, Cardi B, um, and all those folks. Um, I wanted to bring in a tune that I returned to a lot by Nicki Minaj, first and foremost. Unless something has changed, unless I'm not thinking about something, Nicki Minaj has zero Grammys, Scott. Now, you are not in the in the in the mix of hip hop, you are Did, correct. Ha, have you heard the name Nicki Minaj before? Yes, I've heard. Yes, is Nicki Come Minaj on. not someone who I, you would say has been consequential to the music industry? From what I know, I would as an outsider, as I someone would, who I yeah. would say sure. Yes, okay, and because I know her name as a as a fifty year old exactly, white man, okay. exactly. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. and and I can speak to her actual accomplishments and and how she revolutionized. Hip hop itself, much less the the music industry. My point is, you know, I, I bring that up to say, to continue to say, we can't always weigh good and bad and worthwhile on these awards. Certainly not Grammys, because if Nicki Minaj has zero, mm. that that should be all the proof you need. This mm-hmm. is an artist who is certainly, certainly impactful and is continues to be impactful on the music industry despite the drama and and all that other stuff. Uh, the tune of hers that I wanted to bring in is called Pills and Potions. I sent a recording of it uh, to you uh, before mm-hmm. we recorded. Um, what's this podcast called again? What's Truly called? Okay, so that's what I'm, I'm about to do. I'm going I'm to keep it true and real, all right? There are times when I wake up thinking about the lady who fired me, okay? Those emotions are real, I, and I can't pretend that they aren't there. My therapist says, when you feel a feeling, to feel it. Don't don't try to don't I'm, try to bury it. So I like the that. so the ways in which I feel feelings 
oftentimes is by listening to music and just trying to capture the feeling of the song related to myself as a way to just feel it and be done with it. Mm-hmm. Nicki Minaj once uh, described music, at least her her compositions, as a moment in time. I think the critique was, oh, well, how can you make a song with this dude and then now you're not fucking with him no more? She said, it's a moment in time. That's how you feel in that time. It's that time frozen. Yeah. And I think that's the perfect way to describe it, especially when it comes to pills and potions, because Nikki is really speaking to somebody who was on her team, someone who was on her side, someone who she trusted that ended up, you know, not being that. And, you know, despite all of our personal dramas and whether or not we can directly uh, associate ourselves, relate with what Nikki is talking about in particular in this song, I think everyone can relate to the feeling of feeling like that you were let down, feeling like you were betrayed. And that is what's frozen in this song. I wanted to make sure I brought it in, Scott, because we do such a great job across the board of sidelining rap as music that isn't emotional beyond violence, beyond money, beyond sex. But rappers are people, just like the rest of us. And women in rap really get the brunt of it because they aren't really heard. And and even folks as famous as Nicki Minaj, you know, mm-hmm. not being recognized by the Grammys, continue to get shit on by, you know, other folks uh, across media and social media and everything else. Is they're, they're real people and there are some real moments in this music that I think everyone should really know about. So here is uh, Nicki's first verse in the tune, Pills and Potions. Hey, yo, they could never make me hate you Even though what you was doing wasn't tasteful. Even though you out here looking so ungrateful I'ma keep it moving, be classy and graceful I told him it's no friends in the game You ain't learned that yet All the bridges you came over, don't burn that yet Niggas want respect, but niggas ain't earned that yet Self-righteous and entitled, but they swearing on the Bible That they love you, and really they no different from all your rivals But I still don't wish death on them I just reflect on them Pills and potions You know, the other thing that folks are really good at doing is throwing rap away by just considering it generally noisy, you know, just kind of loud. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as as we just heard, it's it's much more than that. You actually have some noisy music to bring in this week, though. I do. (laughs) Talk about it. A couple weeks ago, you remember I said I was going to find a slide artist that I would be excited about bringing in to bring to your attention because there's a certain color, there's a certain sort of slide guitar that makes you feel away. Well, you say a certain color. When I hear, when I hear the slide guitar, I hear a hate of a certain color. <laughs> um, when but, I, but you're helping me change that. I mean, uh, like a texture. That was the wrong choice oh. of words. There's a, a flavor. So I've been trying, and because so many of the pioneers of slide guitar were black. Yeah. Now, being in Women's History Month, I wanted to find a woman to bring in. And in the late uh, 1990s, early aughts, I caught on to a woman named Joanna Connor. Let me ask you this real quick, because again, I'm unfamiliar with the tradition. When you say you had to look for a woman, is that something that you have to look hard for? Are there many women in slide guitar? Or is, from your perspective, is there an issue of women not being highlighted in that tradition? Bing. That's what it is? Right there. So there are a lot of women doing it, they just aren't highlighted. Well, you got Bonnie Raitt. Yeah, of okay, course. and she's fantastic. Yeah, but who I learned about for the first time watching the last Grammys, right? By but, the way, to the you know twenty twenty. But it's that overshadowing thing, isn't yeah. it? That yeah. um, people all of a sudden get a default setting with whoever the first 
person to come up with on, on the searches, right? Yeah. But there are plenty of women playing guitar, not only playing guitar, but playing slide guitar and are shredding it. Mm. Because Joanna Connor was uh, a Chicago, she is Chicago based and very much in that Chicago blues sound and tradition. And she's just out there playing in venues, grinding it out un un until the pandemic, that is, obviously. Um, and when I was uh, in Omaha, there was a time when it was a, a stop on a minor blues circuit, and she would come through a couple times. But in 2018, she did uh, a live spot at the Western Maryland Blues Fest and played a scorching 12-minute set that all of a sudden saw her numbers you know, going way, way up. Um, she has a new release out that came out in January of this year, produced by Joe Bonamassa, who is another... Uh, amazing touring guitarist and i uh, appreciate his work so i was excited to hear what he would do with her new release called i feel so good and garrett there's something about the way this piece comes in she does not make you wait very long for you to hear that scream and slide like 20 minutes uh, 20 minutes like 20 seconds So if you want to feel good in the in the blues aesthetic, check out I Feel So Good, the new release with Joanna Connor. And um, also check out YouTube, the 2018 live spot, her Western Maryland Blues Fest. It is a barn burner. I wrote a, I had to write a piece. I got to write a piece, I'll say, uh, yesterday for an organization in which I, I, uh, I leaned into blues as a as a classical music considering its evolution mm -hmm. from you know what it what it evolved from mm -hmm. so i can you know i we can advocate for slide guitar blues slide guitar as as classic or classical in that regard even within the uh the so-called classical guitar world and tradition is slide not a thing at all is it do do no compositions um, ask for that technique, or is that something that's uniquely outside of the you know Western European guitar classical tradition? No, that's way outside of the European mm, tradition. Yeah, um, if you want to get technical about it, I think probably Hawaiian and Pacific Islanders were probably you know the slack key tradition. Oh sure. Um, so you know they they saw somebody playing in standard and they were like, no, that looks really that looks kind of convoluted. I can just you know put my whole finger across the fret here and play a chord. You know. But uh, trust me, I studied slide, and it is its whole thing unto itself. It is not just something you're going to pick up and do. That tuning is different. You've got open E, open B, open D, all these other, and and all of them behave differently. Mm -hmm. So it makes it, me it makes me think that we need to do something with the phrase extended techniques. We can, we can talk about extended mm. techniques to define 
what is outside. But really, if you're describing it as something that really takes some dexterity, something that really takes some virtuosity, it should be within what they're learning. Oh, right? Joanne is a virtuoso for sure. I mean, I, I feel like that should just that should be a why, why would you not learn how to play this instrument in as many ways as you can, yeah. you know, from your institutions, from your teachers? I think that's, you know, I, I think that's another point that you know, slide guitar raises, at least raises for me, the ways in which we have these instruments that can do all of these things, but we're pigeonholing ourselves mm -hmm. by only playing mm -hmm. them this way. Um, that actually leads us uh, really, uh, really smoothly into this uh, next piece of music I'm going to share as we transition into the third movement. So again, uh, this week, I speak with Lauren Green. She is a master's student at the University of New Mexico, um, and she's putting together an anthology of stories to help black folks tra traverse the field just an anthology of black classical um, music stories she was inspired to write that anthology uh, uh, after reading a feminist anthology so we talk a little bit uh, about that in the conversation but we actually start Scott we began this opus by talking about Triloquy as a view at the world through uh, the eyes of a, of a classical music professional so we actually looked at the world a little bit in our conversation uh, mm. we start by talking about Stacy Dash someone who uh is yeah. finally seeing herself as brown, apparently. Mm. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that in the pre-triloquy after the conversation. But for now, here's a tune um, as performed by Flutronics, these so-called extended techniques, um, in a tune called Brown Square. You see what I did there? I see what Here's Brown Square by Flutronics, and here's my conversation with Miss Lauren Green. You know, as soon as I saw her trending on Twitter, I knew it was something to do with that. I don't really remember a lot of what she was doing besides the the hypocrisy of everything that she chose to do after a certain point in her life. But we knew this was going to happen as soon as the past administration was gone. There were going to be a lot of people who said, you know, actually, I changed my mind <laughs> and I want to go back over to this new side. And it, I, it feels very performative. Mm -hmm. It feels as if it's not genuine. It's more for, OK, well, now this person who I supported for these years is no longer in power. So that I mean, they're no longer any help to them. So, of course, for her, she's like, well, in order to get back into acting and other things, she wants to come back into the good side, I think, of the public eye. And from what I was gauging from people's opinions, memes and everything else that was trending, no one was buying it. No one was buying it. No one was defending her or saying anything in terms of she absolutely deserves to come back with open arms. Because what did she do for us? Right. Like nothing. So, no, I, I, I don't buy it. I don't buy it at all. <laughs> well, you know, people are having a that same sort of you should have known attitude concerning Meghan Markle. And I know everybody's been talking about it for a while now. But what are your general reactions to that continued discussion? You know, when we're talking about um, womanism, colorism, even, you know, classism, what, 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 are, what are your thoughts on, on this continued drama? I saw a quote somewhere going that said, the lightness of Megan's skin is what got her into the royal family. And it's also what's going to get her out Ooh. of it. 
And I was like, oh, you just said a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you just said a lot. <laughs> um, because if you look at the, the, the girl, she's barely black. Like, you can't really tell. She's so very light. Like, so we know that I mean, her mother, of course, we can tell that it's within her. But as for, like, with our own eyes, it's really not too, like, her hair's straight. It's not coily. Um, so it's just crazy how someone who looks like that is still too, like, not white for the royal family. It's ridiculous. I remember, you know, whenever Kate and William got married and all my white friends were like, oh, my gosh, the royal wedding. We have to watch it. I didn't care. I my parents didn't say anything about that. Like it was kind of like the royal family was like almost fake (laughs) in in our household. Like it was like, who are these people? And then I remember whenever, uh, uh, yes, Harry and Meghan announced their engagement. It was crazy. It was like, oh, my gosh. Like we're infiltrating now, mm-hmm. like it's, ha- it's happening. Um, and everyone was just very much like, okay, we got to protect this girl. Like we, we're not sure exactly what's going to happen in this situation, but I think everyone was like, this is great. But at the same time, we can see this going very bad. Cause I mean, we saw what happened with Diana. Right. And Diana was white, right? <laughs> like she was white and this, they still, she, you know, because of her choices and decisions that were not traditional for them, they still decided that she wasn't a great fit for them. And it was, we saw what happened. It was very unfortunate. And so all of this happening, it's no surprise that Harry is choosing to take the side of his wife. I mean, cause first of all, duh, like that's just such a crazy thing. Right. And people would assume that he would just leave her in the filth of the family. Like what, it makes no, absolutely no sense. And then they have a child together. Now they're right. going to have another child together. Um, and I think we kind of saw this coming just a little bit. And it's unfortunate that it's happening the way it is. But I'm very happy that Oprah gave them a platform to speak. And it's everywhere. It was very, like, useful the way that she did that. And I think that the royal family feels the heat from everyone from this. There is so much. I mean, like you said, it's a lot. Okay. There are many directions I could go. I'll, I'll ask this. We'll, we'll go this way. You know, we talk about... You know, Meghan Markle's light skin. She's barely black. X, Y, and Z. Are we gatekeeping blackness? Are are we a part of the problem by by affirming that that discourse, that dialogue? I don't know if it's that. I think more than anything, it's us showing how it doesn't matter like how much like black is in you. For some people, it's like you are still black, right. and it's been a thing that that's we've seen so much. I've have um I have so many biracial friends who people are just still like, well, you're black because you have black in you. But they're like, well, I'm also white. You know, my, yeah. my parents, are. it's pretty split. Um, but it, it's a problem. I don't necessarily think it's to, maybe to an extent, certain people with the way they do things do gatekeep. Mm-hmm. Um, I try not to say like things that I know could be offensive to my BIPOC friends, but a lot of them do identify as like POC because they're like, yeah, I I mean, my dad's black or my mom's black or, you know, something. And so they do identify as that. So it doesn't really bother them. Um, But I think more than anything, it bothers, it bothers people when we see someone like Megan, who, what what percentage even is she like of, you know, which is, it's a very, it's very small, but it's still within her. But it doesn't matter like how eloquent she is. It doesn't matter how graceful she is, how much charity work she does, um, all the amazing things that, that she does. It doesn't matter to them. It's still the fact that she has that little bit of blackness in her that bothers them to no end. 
And that, I think that's what bothers us yeah. <laughs> about it more than it, it bothers me, at least. One of the things that I was bringing to the table in that discussion was, you know, back to that royal wedding, this sort of um, Megan has has aspired to this or, or reached this or, you know, we had all these black folks in the in the royal palace just so proud. Oh, we, we have finally made it tease. You know, uh, I find that problematic. I see that sort of energy within arts institutions as well. You know, from my perspective, when we're talking about, oh, and no shade or maybe shade, I don't know. When we're talking about, oh, <laughs> oh the New York Philharmonic, oh, we have black folks in there or this orchestra or this institution, this conservatory, it feels similar to me. Am, am, I, am I stretching? What, what's your opinion on that? No, I I know exactly what you mean. It's like, well, look at all the, out of the 200 people on that stage, there's one black person. Mm -hmm. Woo. It, it, it kind of takes me back when I think about it, because like, why are we celebrating something that one thing should have already been happening and that should be happening to a more like a larger extent? Right. Um, and it's sad that we're still having first within 2021 and we're still having yeah, the first black this or the first black woman this and everything. But it's just how the system is. And, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge when it happens, but also with acknowledging when it happens, we have to acknowledge that it should have already happened right. before this point um, with, I think, the British family. I don't think we ever thought we were going to get there. Like, I didn't think that was ever, <laughs> right. I don't think that was on anyone's like bingo card for this century uh, was that we were going to see a POC of any type within the Royal family. And so I think for mo most people, it was just a, I think they saw it as something that was progressive. Um, and then we saw it was not, unfortunately, maybe for Harry, but for anyone else, <laughs> it seems like within that family, this was not progressive. Maybe they just kind of let it happen or they couldn't they could flat out say, we don't want her within the family right. without being like, why don't you want her within the family? So, yeah, yeah. it's I'm not even going to get started on Archie yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's a lot of power in being in positions like that, you know, and, and what Harry did, I think, should should definitely uh, be noted. Um, but, you know, the people we we all have power as well. Um especially when we come together and, and organize. I wanted to uh, bring in a quote that uh, I'm sure you're probably familiar with. This is from Sherry Moraga. Uh, she says, the real power, as you and I well know, is collective. I can't afford to be afraid of you, nor you of me. If it takes head-on collisions, let's do it. This polite timidity is killing us. What do you think about that idea of being timid, being polite, really not only uh, being a non-step forward, but maybe even a step back. This this is wonderful. This ties into a lot of things that's been happening, you know, this week within my life. You know, I've been reaching out to a lot of my, you know, Black women, friends, colleagues, sisters, and asking them, like, you know, have you experienced problems with when you, you know, want to address your mental health, people not taking you seriously. Mm -hmm. And the main thing that kept coming back was this idea that they didn't want to come off as aggressive or upset because that's the stereotype that surrounds us. It's always surrounded us, the loud, angry, hostile, aggressive black woman. And so we feel like we have to put ourselves in these little shells and shrink ourselves down to make the people around us feel bigger. Um, and it's it's unfortunate. My family, we're loud. We have we're very <laughs> loud. Like when you walk into and I tell my friends before they come over, I'm like, listen, you have to talk or they're going to make fun of you if you don't talk because everyone talks <laughs> in here. And so like I'm used to being very vocal and very, you know, 
I sometimes have to calm myself down when I'm around my other friends because I get very, you know, I'm a, I get excited. I'm excitable. Yeah. You know, my my mother is the same exact way. She's always like has the butterflies all the time. She's always super excited, super positive, super happy. And some people, it's crazy how some people could see that as being aggressive and loud when I'm just like, this woman couldn't hurt like a fly and like ever. Like she, there's nothing hostile about her nature whatsoever. Um, and so I understand the idea why it seems as if, or why, you know, being timid seems to be the answer in a lot of these, uh, or the solution to a lot of these issues, because it's like, oh, well, if I just make myself seem really like, um, har like harmless, then no one will try to harm me, mm -hmm. you know, I guess. Yeah. And that quote, of course, comes from uh, the book, This Bridge Called My Back. I've been uh, flipping through it. Thanks to you. That was actually uh, the impetus for your own anthology. But but before Absolutely. before we get into your anthology, you know, with this book, The Bridge Called My Back, I'm sure there are um, a lot of moments that would make a lot of men, the more fragile of us, really uh, shook, I'll say, because it's not timid. It's, it's very forward. It's, it's, it's very direct. What do you think is keeping men from um, aligning themselves with uh, feminist ideals or even womanist ideals without feeling like, oh, but, or, uh, you know, the, all, all of those man feelings? <laughs> you know, I see a lot of parallelisms between, like, you know, the idea of supporting like Black Lives Matter for some people and also people who are saying they're feminists. And so what I mean by that is a lot of times we see or some people see uplifting one thing as putting another mm -hmm. thing down. So I think that by being like, oh, I'm a feminist, I am for women or I am I am pro-black, I am for black <clears throat> people, it's saying that yeah, I don't care about another gender or I don't care about another race, which is not what it is at all. And I think last summer with all the protests that were happening, that's the main thing that people were trying to put out there is like, we're not saying that we're better. We want to be your put to like the same playing field. Yeah. Um, and I don't think people understand that. I still don't think a lot of people understand that. And it's very unfortunate. And so in terms of masculinity and <laughs> feminism, <laughs> <laughs> the the I, way you laugh at the word this masculinity. <laughs> <laughs> this is just, it's funny to me because it's like, how, how are you masculine when you're scared of women? Ooh, because anyone, <laughs> anyone who is saying, I don't really support feminism. I'm like, you don't support women? Do you know what feminism is? It's saying, okay, women have the right to do whatever with their bodies. Um, they have the right to equal pay just like men do. They have the right for the same opportunities that men do. And the idea that someone goes... I can't support that. And they try to hide it between, oh, well, I don't support these policies or these political movements or these certain people. Um, and because there's a lot of different layers in feminism. That's the main thing that I got from th this bridge called my back was when they broke down white feminism versus feminism. Right. And that was the thing that really spoke to me a lot because I didn't really think about that too much. This is my really the first time I'm really stepping heavily into the world of feminism and feminist thought and that coming off immediately was like whoa this is very true you know you can be progressive but progressive for a certain person and not for all um and it's just fear at the end of the day it's fear of having less power and fear that if someone is put to the same like given the same opportunities than you they could be better than you and that, it's just, that's exactly how it's always been it's just the fear of like if they figure out how powerful they are if they figure out how strong they are 
like it's over for us. Right, right. And to quickly, very quickly go back to Prince Harry, you know, it's that aha moment that I think a lot of folks don't see. Prince Harry now has firsthand experience with Massage Noir. You know, does it take that tragedy for all men to to sort of see this? And what I'm what I'm also thinking about is, you know, you you also mentioned the protests from last summer. It took people dying in front of the camera for folks to really understand the issue. So, I mean, so, you know, back to feminism and womanism, do you think that's the problem? There, there are men who just have not had the experience of being able to engage massage noir as it lives in the 21st century. Yeah, I I absolutely believe that experiencing something firsthand will have a like a way bigger right. impact um when it happens that way um you know even think, taking that to back to like the you know the race idea I had friends who had never experienced never seen for themselves what it meant to be a person of color specifically a black female right. and um it was one night the the night of the election you know i'm talking about 2016 mm-hmm. um i was in one of my friends dorm rooms my white friend just you know white male friend all right so this couldn't be any more different but he saw me break down and every time we talk about empathy and understanding someone else even though you're like you're not in their shoes he always goes back to that instance he was like i never understood what that meant to other people until i saw you break down mm-hmm. that night and you know the idea that you have to go through something or see it through other people's uh, or go through that with someone and have a firsthand experience with it um it's unfortunate that people can't you know learn without having to go through something that way but sometimes that's how it has to be i've seen it happen where someone faces it head on and it changes their viewpoint because now they're seeing it happen to them. Now, is that a little like shallow? Can we call that like, mm-hmm. okay, well, now it's only important because it's happening to you. Maybe, you know, but if it, if that's what it takes to, to flip the table, then I'm all for it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. We love, we love for the table to be flipped. <laughs> Absolutely. At any opportunity we can get. Right. <laughs> so, um, so what, uh, what was the bridge between uh, the the feminist anthology, this bridge called My Back, and the anthology that you're writing on? What what was the impetus? What was the inspiration for starting your own? Well, again, you know, it was this idea that one of the major things, the, the clip or the sample that we pulled to discuss in my uh, feminist thought class was the part where they were talking, explaining the white feminism versus like actual feminism and how these gr- this group of radical uh, women of color who chose to speak on these issues. I mean, that's what this entire anthology was about is, you know, radical women of color feminists. And I went and thought, okay, that's smart because now they're bringing this down from like feminism to, you no, know, we're going right into this really detailed section that is women of color mm-hmm. feminism, which is very different. And so my, and my, it just came to me, it, it was an immediate thought saying they're having these experiences because they are people of color within their field. I'm a person of color within my field that is mainly like a uh, white dominated. Therefore it just made sense. It just kind of translated very easily over. And I knew from my personal experiences, from finding people in my life who've had the same experiences, they're different experiences, but this, you know, the same idea um, within their education, their careers. I knew there was a lot of these stories that needed to be told because I don't think everyone understands exactly what 
people of color face within fields that are white dominated, especially something with Western classical music. Right. Um, it's there's not a lot of us to be seen. And, you know, it, sometimes there are we, we it's larger for sure, but we're not represented well within the organizations that are out there and the, in the school systems that are out there, which we can Oberlin anyway. Um, and so <laughs> I just had to say that I just had to say it. But um, I I truly think that it just it was something that just kind of came very naturally from it and it made a lot of sense. And I, I think I saw myself and I saw people of color musicians within that. And I wanted, just like they chose to share their story, I wanted to share our story. Yeah, and understanding that the stories will be black doesn't always mean that the audience will be black. I mean, we know that right. story from, from being performers in, in this so-called classical music. How are you making sure that this anthology is a work not only about black folks, but for black people? Well, you know, the point of this, and every time I explain the purpose of this anthology to someone, I was like, it's not only to share these stories um, and allow people to know, but it's so that, you know, now we pull the rug up. We say, this is a problem. Let's do something about it. And there are, are amazing organizations out there that are already implementing these practices and who are pushing for diversity, um, inclusion, equity within the classical music field for like musicians of color. And so it's going to be fuel for these, or it's going to be more you know, content to make more organizations, more things come from this. It's, a, you know, action. It's something that will lead to something. I'm not here to just say, this is what we're experiencing. I'm saying this is what we're experiencing and let's fix it. Are we creating a new challenge for ourselves in this type of work? And what I mean by that is what's sold to so many black families, certain my, certainly my parents, was the inherent good of learning an instrument or, or classical music. It can get you a college scholarship, X, X, Y, and Z. By pulling up the rug and showing these folks how racist all of this is, are, are we creating a barrier? Are we dissuading black folks from, from entering this art form that we both have dedicated so much of our lives to? I see it more as we're paving the way for more inclusion for the, the people who are coming after us, for the people who I want to walk into a music school and not be scared about someone saying something to them because of the way they look, the way their hair is done. Um, I, no, I absolutely see it as something where we're making it better for them by exposing this. You know, there's a there's a danger, I think, in neutrality mm -hmm. and pretending as if someone doesn't or something doesn't exist. And so, yeah, it may be uncomfortable, but as something that I've learned from Dr. William Lake is that I'm not here to make you comfortable. You know, like, and I, I love when he said that. I was like, okay, this is trademark. Like, I'm using <laughs> this for everything. But I think it's that idea that if, oh, if it's not said, then they get, I mean, there's nothing wrong going, like they wouldn't do anything. Like there's nothing to fix if we don't say, hey, there is a problem to be fixed. And I mean, no one else would do anything about it. You know, would they? Like it's something that we have to do because it's from our perspective and it's important to us because no, I don't want the next generation of black female flute players to go through what I had to experience. Right. And so if I have to get my hands dirty in order for them to go through and not experience the things that I did, then I will, Yeah, you know? Do you think the, I, I only hesitate because I, I hear the critique from the older generation that we think we created all this, we're, we're, we're starting all this. At the same time, 
from my perspective, you know, we have the tools to be a little more active, a little more direct. We have social media. We, you know, do, do you, how, how, well, I'll, I'll just leave it open there. How, how do you traverse that conversation? <laughs> I love that because I just had a conversation. My mom and my aunt came to visit me um, for my birthday and we were having brunch and somehow we started talking about it because I have a lot of work that I do and I, I, you know, I push for a lot of change and it's something that I don't think my mom really did when they were young. Like, you know, I don't think that was a thing they did in their generation. You know, she's a boomer, you know, so it's very, it's a pretty big gap between her and me. And something that I was trying to explain that I don't think she really understood was I was like, I think it's very different because now people my age, like me, we're actually wanting to do things that are going to bring about change from this very early age. And, you know, we're not just going to sit and let things happen mm -hmm. to us like we're, we want change. And I think it was hard for her to hear that because, you know, to her, it was sounding as if I was saying I'm doing stuff that you didn't do right. when you were that age. But then my aunt came in and said, she's right though. <laughs> she is, they are doing things that we didn't do during that time because that wasn't how it was. Now it's different. Now, can we say it is due to social media and a lot of other things mm -hmm. that are different between now and then? Absolutely. Um, but I think we do have to acknowledge that they're, you know, we're seeing young, super young activists right now who it's crazy to see because they have those opinions that we've been told for so long that because we are at the age that we are, we shouldn't have an opinion because we don't know enough. And I think that's very harmful. And we're seeing a lot of, you know, this 11-year-old uh, genius does this, this 12-year-old uh, graduates from the, these colleges, and it's showing that you can, you just can't say no to these people. And I had a conversation with someone else about this the other day, and we just have to stop putting limitations on people because of their age. Because we see people who are old, 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 yeah. who do not have wisdom that they should or the knowledge that they should at their ages. And it's because it's, it's ignorance. They want to stay that way. And so saying that, oh, because of age, that's how you, you know, mature and you grow and how you get more knowledge. I think that's wrong. I think that's a very, you know, tunnel vision viewpoint of knowledge. Um, and so it's definitely it's changing and again i think it, it it has some factors to do with all of this stuff you know all of the technology that's around us and we are able to connect with people in different parts of the world that you know they didn't get to do that like i think my my mom if i remember she said the school they went to was one of the first segregated schools in south carolina mm -hmm. growing up you know and it was you know they purposely did that for our, our my grandfather put them in that so that they would get used to being around you know white people and that wasn't normal for them you know growing up and so it was just starting things were just progressing to a very slow start at that point so now we're at the point where we're like no 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 now we want more yeah. you know it's like you're just trying to do this and we're like we're trying to do this we're trying to it's exponential growth that we want to see and not just okay what about a little this here and a little this here so yeah, yeah getting there slowly is is not getting us there at all no absolutely <laughs> among the many weapons you know i mentioned social media among the many other weapons that i think our generation has that are unique to our generation uh, is the microphone in a way podcasting and that uh, sort of thing. So in addition to being a flutist to putting together this anthology, uh, you work on a podcast. How about you uh, talk to us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, so this podcast, you know, it's it's really just a fun talk with friends is what I call it because it's my two best friends who I found during undergrad and we would, you know, always be together and we'd always be having conversations about, you know, music, of course, that was our fields, culture, society, um, and the things that we saw that needed to be changed within our field. And one day, Michael um, actually asked like we should do a podcast. It was when you know during the quarantine and people it was just seemed like there was a huge boost of podcasting that was coming out and he was listening to it a lot and he was like, I think people would like to hear the conversations that we're having because being three young musicians, we all have very different perspectives with our, you know, our um disciplines and also who we are we give a very unique perspective of what's happening and you know we decided to just go for it and see what would happen and i think over time it's shifted to something that we didn't realize we wanted to do i think at the beginning we were scared we're like we're young i don't know if people will respect our opinions and we don't know if we have the right to say the things that we Mm -hmm. do which is crazy like i don't have the right to say what but it's absolutely true So when we created Relative Pitch, it was more the idea of, you know, small progressive things within the music world, things that we were sure that people weren't going to get too mad about. And now it's turned into something where we're calling people out. (laughs) And we didn't we didn't expect it to happen that way. And it just kind of did. And it's funny because that's the thing. Those are the episodes where people are engaging with more. They understand they want to hear more of it. And I've been asked like multiple times to do presentations on and talk about, you know, my podcast and talk about what we speak on about it, because I think people are realizing that the topics we're talking about are really important and they're important for the future of, you know, classical music. Right. And, you know, back to that quote that we were talking about earlier, this polite timidity is killing us. And Absolutely. And, and that's what I really uh, value about Triloquy is that, you know, as, as much as we can, we keep it trill. But I'm, I'm glad I'm so <laughs> glad that you talk about of the discomfort sometimes in speaking truth. And, you know, again, back to Meghan Markle, she was speaking to that when it came to to mental health. Sometimes it can feel uncomfortable to really yell and cuss people out into these microphones, but sometimes it, it must be done. We talk about, Absolutely. you know, that, that the phrase challenging conversations or difficult conversations is sort of in the zeitgeist. My critique is that many of these conversations are, aren't actually challenging, difficult. You just haven't had them. With that being said, there are some very difficult conversations. I think about um, Scott, you know, my co-host, our differences manifest off the mics and off the mics all the time. And we really do have to have some of those difficult um, conversations, you know, concerning race and that sort of thing to pull this back around to the uh, topic of feminism and womanism is collaborating with men on your show, something that has manifested in challenging ways or has created some conversations that have, have really uh, have, have forced some, some work to get through. You know, me, Michael, and Anthony are all very similar, which is, you know, crazy because we're, you know, a Libra, a Leo, and a Scorpio walking to a bar. You know, mm-hmm. it's like a very chaotic <laughs> combination. But we found in each other comfort and ideals that we all could agree upon. It's not that we all have to have think the same because we do not. Actually, in our podcast, I'm usually Switzerland, and Michael and Anthony are on the opposite sides of each other. It's generally what happens. Now, not crazy opposite, obviously, but... You know, this discussion we had, we talked about Wagner a lot because we're doing a, you know, mini book club series on Alex Ross's Wagnerism. And it's hard. It's very hard because we're reading through this stuff and going, oh, 
you know, should we be playing this music still? <laughs> right, like, right. you know, if we know what this what this man has done and, you know, his beliefs and that's like Anthony's side. He's like, no, burn it, yeah. burn it all, you know, burn it to the to the ground. I like and Anthony. Like, yeah. <laughs> You guys would love each other. Absolutely. No, he, um, and then Michael's side is, but it's, you know, some of the most amazing music and we have to talk about the music outside of the person. And I'm in the middle where, you know, I, I do love that music, but at the same time, it's problematic. And we're getting to the point where it's like, when is it time to, to not give fuel to these people with these ideals? And that's what I mean by, you know, the whole right, left and middle side of us. And that's why I think our discussions are so unique. Um, because we're still, you know, we all love each other, but we do have these very different perspectives on these same topics. But it's never been a problem with gender mm. for us. That's never been a thing. Uh, both of them being a part of the LGBTQ community. And like, it, it seems as if they have a better understanding. And also Anthony being not only LGBTQ, but also a black man, you know, he has a perspective that neither me and Michael will ever understand, you know. And so... I think it's it's the empathy thing of knowing like I'm not necessarily in your shoes, but I understand what you're going through because I myself am a minority in some way, and it's just it's just the understanding we have between and the respect and the love that we have between each other that I think makes it so easy to work with them. My response to to Michael is that how do we know that this is the greatest music in the world when we have been exposed to so little of it based on systemic racism and and classism, but and well, 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 I'm sure we'll have our time. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> how, can, uh, how can people get more information on you, the anthology? How can they listen to the podcast and, and everything else? Yeah. So for me, if you want to find me, you can go on Facebook, of course, L-O-R-I-N Green. That's my name. That's how my mom chose it. So that's how it is. And um, <laughs> my my Instagram is laurengreen.flute if you want to find me there. And for the podcast, you can go to our website, Relative Pitch podcast.com and you can find all of our links to our listening platforms episodes ways to uh support the podcast even be on the podcast if you wanted to and um more information is just all, all the information you need is with on you know that website yeah so. absolutely so as we uh as we uh move out here is there some uh woman fueled maybe even black woman fueled flute music that's in your earbuds on your music stand that you would love for folks to uh to to you would love to put folks on to absolutely i mean i think any one of the flute community uh knows who valerie coleman i think anyone in all the music community mm -hmm. should know who valerie coleman is first of all um but i'm working on a solo flute piece by her right now called uh, donza de la mariposa and it's an extended techniques piece for flute and it's challenging me in so many different ways and it's taken a long time for me to feel as if I'm connecting to music. You know, I've been in competition season, so you know what music I've been working on, um, not that. And so now that I'm done with competition season, I really wanted to work on things that I felt connected to in some way. And that music always is so, so exciting for me to work on. And it, it does so much to me when I play it. And it's, she knows what, she just knows. I don't know how, but she just knows.
Danza de la Mariposa by Valerie Coleman to transition me out of the uh, conversation there with Lauren Green. Huge shout out to her and everyone over at uh, Relative Pitch. Can't wait to collaborate on y'all's side of the fence. So, uh, Scott, we began that conversation, Lauren and I, talking about... Stacy Dash. I wanted to. I didn't want to put this in the triloquy. I thought we would put it in the pre-triloquy. And this is the question that I posed to you in advance, so you had plenty of time mm-hmm. to think about it. We got Stacy Dash out here, who has for so many years propagated, you know, conservative ideals that most people would say are anti-black. I wrote a couple of them down. You, uh, oh, go ahead. She, yeah, she thought Black Lives Matter, the BLM movement, should be eliminated. And she agreed that there were very fine people on both sides in Charlottesville. Okay. You have spent, at least, at the very least, the last couple years, not only putting time resources, some money resources into anti-racist work, but emotional resources. Mm -hmm. You have really had to come to terms with yourself Mm -hmm. and go through your own mental ringer based on what you have seen while there are folks like Stacy Dash doing what she does. I don't think it's appropriate for you to try to cancel a black woman. I'll say that for the listeners now. What I will ask you is, how does it make you feel when you see someone who is black, who has spent so much time, again, doing what she has done against anti-racism, looking for, uh, looking for repentance now? I'd say good. I say that too. Glad, glad. I say that too. Glad you're doing it. It's not up to me to hand out that. um, Cook out invite? (laughs) No, to to hand out the The blessing. The blessing, blessing, yeah. Yeah, it's not my my place to go. Okay, that's okay. Yeah. And I did think a lot about it. And you asked me if I thought that I should get a ticket to the barbecue before Station Mm -hmm. Dash again. (laughs) Yeah. And my the first thing that I said was no, Stacy should get one before me, and the reason being is because I thought a lot about a concept you brought up um, <clears throat> when we were talking about President Number Forty Five, mm-hmm. um, how there would be um, little problem if that person won again because it's the devil, you know. You know, you talked about we we already know that he's up to some shit, yeah, and that he's going to be terrible. You know, and, so, and we don't, ha- and we wouldn't have to pretend that he wouldn't be. So <laughs> we know that, okay. Yeah. But we also know that um, there are people who will trust a conservative black woman over any white person. So that's mm. the direction that you know. That's the direction that I was going first, and then I started looking on Twitter a little bit, and Uh-oh. I had to kind of, <laughs> I had to scratch my head just a little bit and go, well, I'm not a hundred percent sure because you know how the thing now is to put up four pictures and the person says one's got to go. Oh right. I I haven't seen anybody advocate for her yet in, in somebody's timeline. Same, and 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 as you heard, Lauren did not. <laughs> yeah right. This so. is this is my statement. And if you don't know who we're talking about, Stacey Dash, look look this up. I think this is an interesting uh, conversation. As Issa Rae famously said, I'm rooting for everybody black. Mm -hmm. I I really stand by that. I'm rooting for Stacey Dash in that I am rooting for her to understand the damage that she has created and what she needs to do. I would gladly, and again, I don't have a cookout invite to give to nobody either. (laughs) But I would gladly welcome her into the fold if she dedicated the rest of her life, the rest of her career, Mm. to anti-racism. As hard as she rode 
for Fox News and all those folks, I need her to ride double hard for what we're trying to do to find our liberation. So what that would mean is spending the rest of your life focusing on that. I don't want to see you in a movie. I don't want to see you in a music video. I don't want to see you doing anything except fighting racism. That's what you need to dedicate your rest of the life to rest of your life to as far as I'm concerned based on the amount of energy and time you spent doing the converse. It's not always easy for me to uh come on here and you know say say what the people are not saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I I'm I'm not I'm I'm not mad at Stacy Dash. I'm hoping that she understands what she actually needs to do moving forward, which is really dedicating herself to to, to what we're doing. I, I first heard about Stacey Dash from of the TV version of of Clueless. You you know her from other stuff, I, I yeah, guess. But. Yeah, uh, Mo Money, okay. Damon Wayans. Uh, I thought she was great. and Colluding uh, with the blacks there. And I, and I also <laughs> saw her in a, in a little-known movie with Richard Pryor and Felicia Rashad called Moving. And... And I thought she was great in that too. So I have a question for you about this, though. Okay. Do you think that there's a chance that Stacey Dash is going to be uh, effectively a woman without a country? So, like, she's disavowing all the Fox News stuff and all the conservative stuff. Okay, so that's going to piss them off, right? So that door's closed. And if she's not invited to the barbecue, then is she just going to be just Stacey Dash on on her own? No, she can go hang out with Terry Crews wherever he at. Not Terry Crews. Is, did he do something? Well, we'll, we'll talk about it afterwards. Oh, yeah, let's get into the trilogy. Turn off the microphone. You can tell me. It's <laughs> not let, Terry Crews. Let, let, let's get into the trilogy. Most people know me as a critically acclaimed actor with rhythmic pecs, but I'm also a talented flautist. This actually won't be too long this week, this fourth movement here, but I wanted to mention something that I feel like should be mentioned. So over the course of all of the Grammy things and everyone um, congratulating each other and critiquing the institution in X, Y, and Z was the news that the Met won a Grammy, mm-hmm. right? Okay. I And I used that sentence very intentionally. The Met won a Grammy for for uh, their, their production of Porgy and Bess. All sorts of people on my timelines, you know, saying good things and congratulations and woot woot. Scott, there are folks that have still not been paid over there. Mm-hmm. Not, paid, not paid at all. How would you feel if you were a part of this historic, what should not be a historic performance, first of all, but this historic performance of Porgy and Bess, we can talk about the issues that I have with the actual composition itself. Fact of the matter is the the the, the children loved it. The the the, the people were, were all over it and it made history with all those black folks on stage, everybody it took back behind the stage, X, Y, and Z. Okay. Let's say you were a part of that. Maybe you're in sound or lighting or or something. And you see that institution celebrating this win off the backs of not only you, but all of the black folks that that put their blood, sweat and tears in there and, you know, have, have not not even gotten paid for it. How, how would that make? Would you not feel a way? Used, would you not feel a way? You used, would feel used. Snubbed. That's that's how so many. Inconsequential. Black, that's how so many black singers are feeling right now. Scott, there were folks on that stage, folks who the Met benefited from mm-hmm. who not only were not paid didn't even have a place to stay while they were in New York. they had to wow. figure that part of it out wow. it's one thing to travel to shelter bell theater and and figure out your housing 
Omaha, Twin Cities ain't New York City, right. where you for real have to figure it out if you don't have any friends or family there because it costs an arm and a leg to sleep in a little cubby hole, much less a hotel room that's worth a damn. Right. I quote tweeted the Met with the, the simple phrase, pay your musicians. I wanted to make sure I named it because my interactions, you know, on, on social media, at least for that post, are comparable match, uh, maybe even go beyond at this point. I'm not out here trying to be a bully, uh, a rebel rouser, whatever, just trying to be edgy, calling out the Met. I think it's very, very, very important that someone, that some people, that as many people as possible are continuing to name the fact that they that there are people who have not been paid and they're out here winning Grammys, being recognized by, by this board of people for snubbing and taking advantage of countless artists. When you worked as a professional musician, was there any clause in any of your contracts where you would get a bonus if an award was won? Not that I have seen, not not that I've seen, and I don't, I don't, I'm not sure about See, that. See, I think I think that they should get an extra little bump if they got an award. Well, they they need to get what they were owed anyway. Damn. Well, of you know? course, what I'm, I'm saying <laughs> is, on top of it, not only should they be the salary, of course, but a bonus. You want a Grammy? You should get a bonus. I think an, another part, well, it's, uh, maybe a little inside baseball talk. Well, I'll, I'll have to bring a chorus member on. I think when we talk about an opera production, the orchestra is going to get paid. Mm-hmm. That That's the thing. Mm-hmm. And that's my experience as, as a musician. We're on contract. We're leaving at the time. If it if, if runs to nine o'clock, Garrett is packing up his bassoon and walking out. And I've done it. <laughs> I did, you ask people. I have done that, you know, mainly in ballets that have run long. But <laughs> but 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 that's the thing. It's, and when it comes to uh, choruses, opera choruses, mm-hmm. and again, not the soloists, mm-hmm. but the choruses, those those musicians are shat on so often all the way up to the major institutions like the Met with endowments that are ridiculous and you can't pay these folks and on top of that you are really benefiting you know that institution is benefiting from all of those black people that those audience saw on stage has this Grammy now they can now call that a Grammy award winning production mm-hmm. but in the backdrop of it you have all of these musicians that you did nothing for right that has to be named in the field of opera I feel like most singers cannot speak the way I do because as a singer, you need these institutions to hire you. You need people to like you. You know, I think it's a little different than being an instrumentalist. That mm-hmm. it, it works a little differently. I understand that. I respect it for what it is. I also take on the responsibility of not being one of those people and naming the issue. So if you go to my Twitter or, or whatever and, and you see me uh, cussing out the Met or doing whatever I have to do, it's not about me trying to be it's not about me trying to point attention to them. It's about me trying to let y'all know that they're fucking people over and their day is going to come. Every dog has his day. Isn't that what they say? They do say that. We'll see when that day is. See y'all next time.